Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Do you ever have one of those moments when you're packing for a trip? When I say moments in this context, I'm talking about a special sort of anxiety, travel anxiety. It comes in all different varieties. It's a very personal thing, but broadly present, you know, all around us. Most of you know what I'm talking about. It might be that you can't make up your mind on what to wear. So you pack, uh, say, eight outfits for a two-day trip, and you're still anxious that you don't have the right outfit. Has that ever happened to you? I know some folks like that. Uh, me, uh, well, I like to travel and, and generally have no major anxiety about traveling. Generally, that is. But I still have my own travel anxiety. For me, it's the worry that I'll leave something important in the hotel room or wherever I am staying or even forget to pack it all together. I'm the kind of person who checks a hotel room five or six times before I check out just to make sure I didn't leave a shoe under the bed or my watch or even a toothbrush behind in the room. Hundreds of years from now, some scientists will study this, and I am convinced they will determine it was something specific within our own DNA that makes us anxious about losing our toothbrush, but perhaps carefree about whether we made a wrong turn in Montana and ended up in Canada before we knew it, or vice versa. I bet they are going to just tell us that all this is pre-programmed when it comes to determining which things we worry about in this world. Actually, that may already have been figured out scientifically, by the way. But I really don't know because I've been too occupied with trying to find one of my best shoes. Can you believe it? I think I lost it last week when I traveled to Pittsburgh. Oh, how fitting. Or maybe I should say unfitting. Oh, and I probably missed that moment where they told everyone the true scientific answer to my ponder. I bet the real answer was on the news, or maybe it was on Jeopardy. All right, all right, I'll stop. So why did I take that little wander? Well, I started saying this a couple of episodes ago, and I'll say it again here. I feel like we're getting close to finishing up our time in Dealey Plaza. We've heard the stories, and we have listened to witnesses, and... We've gotten the evidence from most of those witnesses that were present that day and that were right there, right in the center of the action. I mean, geez, this is episode 47 already, and we really haven't even left the scene of the crime yet. You know, after saying that out loud, I'm sure that some of you might think I've been driving in circles. (laughs) Well, look, trust me, there are a lot of other cool places to get to in this story the story of the JFK assassination. No need to drive in circles. You know this already, but when it comes to wandering, we're going to have to turn the car around at some point pretty soon and head back east because we forgot to stop in New Orleans. Man, there is a big part of the story that happened right there. But never you mind about that. I promise I will get back to that when the time is right. So we really are finishing up and leaving Dealey Plaza, and these past few days, well, I have been in that frame of mind where I was worried that I was leaving something behind, something unsaid. What was it? 
Was I just nervous that we were headed west to the Golden Gate and yet we hadn't stopped in New Orleans yet? Or was I nervous that I was just going in the wrong direction at the moment? Was that my travel anxiety? Heading west when I should be headed east first? Or perhaps that I leave out a really important story from Dealey Plaza that needed to be told, perhaps about one of the most important witnesses in the story. That would be my luck. The equivalent of leaving one of my best shoes or maybe even a suit in the hotel room. As I thought about it, I had a wave of travel anxiety come over me. Normally, I would be looking for the lost shoe under the bed and working my anxiety up that way. But in this travel sequence, my own journey with JFK, the enduring secret, well, my travel anxiety told me that I really had left something behind in the hotel room. It was not a good feeling. And then the light went on and the anxiety subsided. We needed to tell the story of Richard Randolph Carr. In a sense, all the sensory perceptions were correct on this one. Most of the story takes place in a courtroom in 1969 in New Orleans at the Clay Shaw trial. So we are fast forwarding more than five years and making a U-turn geographically and heading back east to New Orleans for this episode. We'll head west again after that. Before we move on to the storytell around Richard Randolph Carr, I've been getting some great emails from a number of you, and I want to remind everyone once again that you can contact me directly at podcastjfk at gmail.com, and you can also post on the website blogs, and we can respond to each other that way as well. I've gotten a little bit of both from all of you. Remember, if you post on the blog, then it's there for everyone else to see as well. And all you have to do is go to www.podcastjfk.com and find the episode you want to make a comment about and post right there to the blog for that episode. There is a slight delay in those posts appearing on the blog. They don't post immediately. Don't let that bother you. That's the way it's built. The blog we installed came that way out of the box. So here we are, packing up to leave Dealey Plaza, and I feel so relieved that it finally dawned on me that there is still one really big story to tell. And just to set your expectations, there are a few other smaller things to pack as well. So maybe one or two more episodes as we load the car and before we start the rest of the trip. But let's tell the last big one first and do it today. As I said, it's the story of Richard Randolph Carr. Carr was but one more example of where the FBI just let that sleeping dog lie right there on the floor. What Richard Randolph Carr saw that day in Dealey Plaza was nothing short of spectacular. It reinforces some statements made by other witnesses. For me, what Richard Randolph Carr attested to is a capstone of sorts for all the evidence we heard from other Dealey Plaza witnesses. If you are a juror that is constantly struggling with the evidence that you have heard so far, and really that could be for a variety of reasons, well, for me, listening to Richard Randolph Carr was extremely helpful. I do understand that there really is no substitute for being there in the jury box right at the moment that a trial is going on and listening to a witness and hearing the interrogation and the answers in context. And to be able to look that witness in the eye and really have that eyewitness look over and back at you, the jury. 
It is as if there is some sort of visceral thing that turns that experience into an unspoken piece of evidence, something that reaches inside of you as a juror to help make that decision on whether or not you feel like what you're hearing is credible or not. We can't give that experience here with a possible exception of what is going to happen in some future episodes where we will hear some of the folks live as they did give their testimony and answer questions while the sound was being recorded. Marina Oswell gave testimony to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and her testimony is a good example of that. And she is coming in that form soon enough. And by the way, she became proficient in English pretty quickly after the assassination, and her English had progressed enough by the late 70s that the conversation and the exchange you will hear are quite robust. But back to the point I was making. Back in 1964, the Warren Commission didn't record oral testimony. A written transcript of what was said was as good as it got. So the bottom line is that we have to rely on what is likely to be the next best thing, as good as we got. The written transcripts of testimony examination and cross-examination where a witness is under oath. And of course, you got to put up with my crappy accents and role-playing. I guess it could be worse, right? Uh, Well, how much so, though, I'm not sure. The story of Richard Randolph Carr is mostly a story of his testimony at the Clay Shaw trial in 1969. It's the kind of testimony that you love. When I say you can't make this stuff up, this is the kind of courtroom testimony that falls under that heading. That's why I am going to reproduce it verbatim for this episode. The only snag is there is only me, and there are five characters in this act of the Passion Play. Carr himself is the witness. Jim Garrison, the district attorney of New Orleans, who was the prosecutor on this case, and his assistant attorney, James Alcock. And then F. Irvin Diamond, who was Clay Shaw's defense attorney. And finally, the judge, Edward Haggerty, who presided over the trial. I'll tell you a peculiar story about the judge, by the way, at the end. So, Given that it's only me and we don't have five different people who can do five different voiceovers, well, you know what's coming. So here is how I am going to do it. Carr, the witness, gets my natural voice. So once testimony starts, I'll use my voice to depict his testimony. Garrison had a booming voice, and I'll use my sorry substitute of a booming voice for Garrison. Defense attorney Diamond is the other actor who plays a key role with lots of voice needed in order to give this life. So for Diamond, who was a lifelong New Orleans resident, I'm going to use my rather crappy southern accent because it contrasts nicely with Garrison's booming voice. For the other two characters, Judge Haggerty and assistant attorney James Alcock, since they have lesser parts from a speaking standpoint, I'll just reference them by name as I speak for them and use my natural voice. Okay, that is way too complicated. I know. So if I do this again, we are going to do this with additional participants on the podcast. But sometimes you got to make do with what you got. (laughs) You know, I have to laugh because years ago, Eddie Murphy made a movie once, The Nutty Professor, where he played seven characters in the same movie. 
somewhat modeling off of the old Peter Sellers days when Sellers played multiple characters. I know, you are all chuckling right now and saying, you, sir, are no Eddie Murphy. <laughs> well, that should be obvious. And look, I would love for Eddie Murphy to come onto the podcast and do multiple characters with me. Can you imagine Eddie Murphy doing Marina Oswald in a soft, feminine English with a thick Russian accent? Well, I have a feeling that is not happening anytime soon. If Eddie does find out about this podcast on this one, he's just going to let a sleeping dog lie. But then again, this is the story of the JFK assassination, and stranger things have happened. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 47. Before we get started on the testimony that Richard Randolph Carr provided in the Clay Shaw trial, it's worth noting a few things about his prior testimony. Keep in mind that he was not identified as a witness at the scene of the crime on November 22nd, like so many other witnesses were. Perhaps his physical position inside an ancillary building at the time and the subsequent filling up of Dealey Plaza with people contributed to all of that, but for sure, he did not initially seek to go and talk to the authorities about what he saw. As a result, there is no Dallas Sheriff's Office affidavit taken on the day of the assassination or other similar documents available like there are for so many other witnesses. The FBI first came into contact and interviewed Carr on January 4, 1964, or about six weeks after the assassination. There appears to be no standalone FBI report related to the January 4th interview. The FBI subsequently interviewed Carr again on February 3, 1964, and promptly filed a report the day after on February 4th. The FBI report on the 4th is the only available official document related to his statements that he made directly to the authorities before working with Jim Garrison's team and testifying in New Orleans at the Clay Shaw trial. It's uh, not entirely clear what the FBI's motives were for a second interview, but in the February 4th report, we first learned that the second interview was to clarify certain things. Not unusual in and of itself. Certainly, the investigators engage in multiple interviews all the time. But keep in mind, they never separately documented the January meeting up to that point. And this is now some 30 days which had gone by already, and no report of this sensational tale had been made. So, were they just going to let this sleeping dog lie? Well, apparently because of some information that they had heard about and gotten hold of secondhand, information that Carr had made an alleged statement indicating that Lee Harvey Oswald had not assassinated President Kennedy, well, could it have been that perhaps the FBI's decision in January to just let that dog lie on the floor was now making them nervous? Because Carr was showing up in ways that were connected to other witnesses, witnesses that seemed dangerously close to very important elements of this case, which you will hear the particulars of in a moment. Well, 
Regardless of the motivation, the FBI wasted no time in documenting the results of their second meeting on February 3, 1964. Preparing a report, the only FBI report, dated February 4th, just one day after the interview, and which also referenced the original interview date of January 3rd, basically tidying up that little detail. I'm inclined to read to you the FBI report verbatim, but I have decided not to, only because I don't want to spoil the real story of what Carr said in his own words and under oath when we get to the Clay Shaw trial testimony in a minute. But the details of what is contained in the FBI report reflect just how intensely the FBI was trying to bend what Carr was saying so that it would be just close enough to the official narrative to render it, at least in their own eyes, render it useless and forever in limbo captured now as a seemingly irrelevant detail. It's incredible to compare and contrast what was in this FBI report with what you will hear some five years later from Carr, when he is finally speaking in his own words and under oath at the Clay Shaw trial. I'll just say for the record that there are a lot of differences and dubious comments inserted presumably by the FBI, clearly for one reason, to preserve the official narrative. There are a few statements that I would like to highlight in the FBI report before we move on to the Clay Shaw testimony. So let's start with a conversation that gives context to why the FBI gave it more than a second thought to not sweep this one totally under the rug. Here it goes verbatim from the FBI report. Sometime after the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald, exact date not recalled, I was talking to Elsie Johnson her sister, Mary Sue, and another woman by the name of Jennery. My wife was also present during this conversation. It is my understanding that the way the conversation came up, Elsie uh, Johnson and Mary Sue were discussing Jack Ruby and the shooting of Oswald. They mentioned that they were acquainted with Ruby and had been interviewed by the FBI. In addition, there was a general discussion of the assassination of President Kennedy and the subsequent shooting of Oswald. It is my recollection that during this discussion, I expressed the opinion that Lee Harvey Oswald did not fire the shots that killed Kennedy. I was uh, basing this opinion on various statements I had heard on radio and TV concerning the assassination and how it was uh, supposed to have occurred. I also base this opinion on reported accounts of the shooting of Officer Tippett. In my comparison of the accounts of the Tippett shooting and the assassination reports, I, I may have mentioned during this conversation the individual that I had seen on eleven twenty-two sixty-three while I was on the new courthouse building. However, I did not state at any time that this man I had seen from the building and later on the street was the man who had shot President Kennedy. I did not have any specific information concerning the assassination of President Kennedy at the time of this conversation with Elsie Johnson and her sister, and I do not at the present time have any information concerning the assassination. Any statements I made to the effect that Lee Harvey Oswald was not the person who shot Kennedy were merely uh, expressions of my opinions. Well, as I like to say, there you have it. Or, better yet, 
as my older son used to say, Dad, that was a real smasher. <laughs> I think you get my drift. Now, let's visit another section of the FBI report that will help to address one thing I pointed out earlier. What did this witness do in the immediate aftermath of the assassination? Particularly, what did he do that at least contributed to him not being identified as a witness right there in Dealey Plaza? We know there were lots of people that just came forward. He didn't, at least not that day. Part of the February 4th FBI report explains it. So here it is, also verbatim. Oh, and this part of the report shows off another batch of obvious editorializing by the FBI to emphasize that there was no news here worth printing. You'll get the drift in a second. Here goes. I proceeded to my car, which was parked near the new county courthouse building, and drove by the residence of my brother and then to Pete Cates, Allstate Trailer Park, Zangs Boulevard, and uh, Clarendon Street. My sister-in-law was watching TV, and she came and told me the president had been shot, and Pete Cates and I then watched TV until it was announced the president had died. This was the first time I realized that the noises I had heard while on the new county building had probably been gunshots. I wish to state at this point that I did not see anyone in the Texas School Book building with a gun. I did not see the assassination of President Kennedy, and I did not at any time tell anyone that I had seen the assassination of President Kennedy. Okay, I should have saved my son's smasher comment for this passage, because the passage I just read to you is undoubtedly a bigger smasher than the first smasher, but undoubtedly they are both smashers. I guess it's a double smash of a report so far. But who's counting? And you will understand how bad that testimony was twisted to render it useless when you listen to Carr's testimony in the trial. I know, you want me to hurry up. Well, we'll get there in a minute. But for now, before we pivot to the trial, I am going to highlight one more item in the FBI report. I point this out because I am afraid that a normal technique to render testimony useless is to discredit witnesses in both big and small ways. The FBI report starts out with this apparently important element that tracks the specific reasons by which Carr came to be in the plaza that morning. Listen carefully and contrast it to his testimony when you hear it later. This is what is in the FBI report verbatim. On the morning of November 22, 1963, I had taken my wife and child to Parkland Hospital, Dallas, arriving there at approximately 11.30 a.m. I left my wife and child at the hospital and proceeded to the downtown area of Dallas to attempt to locate employment, being temporarily without employment at that time. Now, why would a man drop his wife and child off at the hospital and go look for a job if there was a medical emergency going on? This clearly stinks of an attempt to discredit Carr. We don't know the reason for the hospital visit. I know that. But it certainly is styled here as if to imply that he may have abandoned his wife and kid at the hospital for a task of lesser importance. Oh, and by the way, he's unemployed too. You get the drift. 
The way the statement is written, it might have been accurate, but it was designed to be out of context for sure. Perhaps not quite a smasher, but its origin came from other motives that the FBI may have had about his testimony. Pretty sure of that, because there is just no reason to insert a hanging chat of a comment like that without further explanation, unless you want to discredit the rest of the testimony. Okay, we are going to stop for just a moment as everyone has to get themselves to New Orleans for at least this one act of the Clay Shaw trial and the testimony that I am about to present from Richard Randolph Carr, which is up next in episode 48. So, safe travels, everyone. Oh, and don't forget to pack what you need. But remember, no sweat if you don't. And uh, tune in to the next episode since it's up already and waiting for you to listen. You know what it means to miss New Orleans. Thank you for listening to episode 47 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.